Borderlines podcast. Uh, I'm Peter Edelman. I'm here with Steve Murens, and today we're uh, very fortunate to have Ron Mackay joining us. Uh, Ron uh, is well known to people in the immigration bar, uh, has been a longtime practitioner and former CIC officer. Uh, Ron is also the recent uh, chair or former chair of, uh, the I- of ICCRC, the Immigration Consultants of Canada Regulatory Council. Um, and so we're going to uh, have a discussion today about consultants and about the, uh, the regulation of consultants. So we're very happy to have Ron here. Welcome. Thank you. All right. So I, maybe we'll start with uh, just a little bit of background of uh, how you got into the, the immigration field, uh, Ron. I know that you've got a long, uh, a long history in the immigration field. You started... Uh, yes, actually, I started in uh, dealing with immigration overseas initially as a student advisor back in 1983 to 86. Then I basically was employed by the Canadian Embassy in Tokyo as their uh, locally engaged immigration officer for almost 10 years. I returned to Vancouver in December of 96, where for 20 years I was employed at the law firm of Clark Wilson as their immigration consultant. Uh, During that time, uh, I've heavily been involved with the immigration consultant industry. One from initially being one of the heads of an organization called OPEC, which predates KPEC, which is one was an organization for, for professional immigration consultants. And now you have the Canadian Association of Professional Immigration Consultants, which is, is more similar to what your CBA is. So I was, I was fortunate to help uh, in the founding of KPEC. Um, we have had a number of goals in the industry of always looking at the horizon in regards to the profession of, of, of immigration consulting. And what I mean by that is when I initially got out of the government, the one thing that we would note is if you're going to move towards regulation, one, there has to be education. Two, there has to be a regulatory body and there has to be uh, uh, a complaints and discipline process. Also at that time, there should be a national association of something, of, of consultants as well. At that time, we had more regional associations, uh, and so we ended up combining them. So from that standpoint, 20 years moving to date, um, we've seen the evolution of uh, consultants, where back then it went from absolutely nothing in regards to it, to going, us seeing the Mangot case and the various court, court cases that proceeded with then identifying other legal counsel. Well, why don't we, why don't, I think it might be helpful for us to just go through the history of consultants a little bit. Um, so you, um, I mean, you started out at, uh, at CIC, and so this would have been in the 1980s, 80s. Uh, in the 1980s. And so at that time, um, anybody could uh, represent people on in immigration matters. Um, they didn't need any kind of designation, any kind of... Uh, Correct. And yep. they could charge money for that, and and that was uh, um, that was considered well, or at least it, it, from the government, the federal government's perspective, they they didn't intervene uh, during those couple of decades, uh, or even prior to that, for that matter. 
Um, now, what we, you talked briefly about the Mangut case, and so what? Uh, just for our listeners, the the Mangut case was a case that arose in British Columbia. It was uh, Mr. Mangut was a uh, a lawyer from uh, I believe the Punjab in India, uh, and he had done his law degree there. He had set up a consultancy in British Columbia where he was offering to represent people in particular before the Immigration and Refugee Board and, and Correct. Uh, just for some context the Immigration and Refugee Board was uh, was only created in the late 1980s uh, so there was no Immigration and Refugee Board prior to that and so what Mr. Mungat was doing was representing people the Law Society of BC took issue with that and was of the view that uh, that was something reserved to lawyers. Practicing uh, law, yes. So if you practice law, you can't, uh, and in in British Columbia, like in other provinces, you cannot, um, in particular, charge money, but uh, you can't engage in the practice of law without having a a license to do so. And it's a, a very, that's a very interesting point, because now we move 20 years later, and we find ourselves before a parliamentary committee, and or we see immigration consultants in the system still evolving. And one of the aspects of that is where the initial premise is that law societies still have statute, still have the mandate to be able to protect the public from those persons practicing without, uh, without any type of qualification, not being recognized as an authorized representative, which is interesting from the standpoint of when you're talking about ICCRC in regards to its mandate from the standpoint that in regards to the regulation of consultants this is I can tell you predating Mangot there was lobbying for us to see the industry become a profession become regulated and during those years it was sort of nobody really wanted to get involved it was the Mangot case that ended up precipitating the movement forward but then we've had, since then we've had, uh, we had an organization called CSIC, and we also now have an organization called ICCRC. And one has to take a look at their mandate. They don't have a statute. The power has been given to them by minister's delegation. So it's not by statute, and you also have to consider the mandate all of our regulatory bodies. So should we, I just want to go back and let, let's, uh, just before we use a number of acronyms, okay. uh, let's maybe go back and talk about what uh, what CSIC and ICCRC actually were and how they developed. Yep. Um, so with respect to Mangat, just to just finish with Mangat, we uh, ultimately, uh, the Law Society was successful in getting an order, and I think this is going to become important for our discussion later, is that Mangat yes. was somebody who was practicing without a license and the law society does go after people who practice law without a license and has a mandate to do so um and with uh what we may even refer to these days as maybe a ghost lawyer or whatever the uh ghost ghost consultants are are a major issue uh today and that's one of the reasons why i was bringing that up in regards to in regards when you take a look at the the regulatory landscape is that the law societies have the power to go after ghost consultants still. It's interesting that in the two renditions of the regulatory body, they have not been given a statute or they have not been given the mandate to be able to to be able to cause a ghost consultant to cease practicing. 
Yeah, I think that. And that well, yeah, I think that's definitely an issue that we should, uh, when we maybe in a few minutes when we get to some of the current issues facing the regulation of consultants. Um, but just going back to Mangat, maybe mm-hmm. uh, Peter, if you want to provide a summary of the decision and where the courts do authorize in the end the ability of people other than lawyers to practice immigration law. Well, the, the court doesn't doesn't authorize. So what what happens with Mangat is that at first the court, uh, the BC Supreme Court, or issues the order that's being requested by the Law Society, which prohibits Mr. Mangat from engaging in the practice of law, and he appealed that to the BC Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal found that the uh, it was outside the the jurisdiction of the Law Society, and in particular, it was not in provincial jurisdiction to decide who could and couldn't appear before the Immigration and Refugee Board, which was a federal tribunal. And the statute that at that time was in force, the Immigration Act, at the time um, purported to allow lawyers, I believe it was lawyers, notaries, and other counsel or something along those lines. Um, the, the decision really turned on this definition of other counsel, which essentially allowed anybody to appear before the Immigration and Refugee Board uh, for um, for re- and be paid to do so for consideration. Um, but the uh, the the issue from the Supreme Court, so this went to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Supreme Court made the decision based on the division of powers. So, in other words, it wasn't a decision authorizing counsel to appear before the board. What the the Supreme Court said was, this is up to the federal government. So it's yeah. not it's not within provincial jurisdiction. Uh, and following the decision in Mangat, because at that time, as Ron said, I think earlier, I don't remember if we were recording at the time, but it was the wild, it was the wild west at the time, uh, that there was no regulation whatsoever. Anybody could hang out their shingle, call themselves a consultant and, uh, and collect money. There was no regulation. There was no requirement to be a member of any organization. And so then in 2000, 2002, there were uh, hearings before Parliament, Correct. Um, which led to the creation of CSIC, Correct. the Canadian Society of Immigration Visual Consultants. Consultants. Do you want to just give us a brief summary of what happened? What, what was CSIC and, and what happened to CSIC? Uh, what, or what went wrong with CSIC? Because there, there was, um, and, and I think, if I recall correctly, you may have been one of the, uh, you, you may have been a critic of CSIC. Well, maybe I could put in your own words as to, well, as to what, just what even before CSIC, and I don't, I don't, I think it'd be neat, and I don't, I've, I don't know if we've ever talked about it. What was, so there, in two, there's hearings, CSIC created. What was the landscape back then? Did CSIC originate from a group of practitioners who were concerned that it was unregulated? Were concerns coming from elsewhere? Like, what was going on in the, late 90s, early 2000s that led to the call for regulation? Well, let's take a look at the composition of the CSIC board at that time. You basically had three lawyers, three public interest directors, and three consultants. So you had the concern of the legal profession, the lawyers. So with that, there was generated three lawyers to sit on the board or to be identified. And they had three consultants, and they also recognized the need for consumer protection as well, so they identified three public interest directors. What ended up transpiring is it went from the Wild West to, I'll say, 
trying to to get everybody to undergo uh, initial education to be able to to take a look at standards to be able and initial establishment of standards to be able to write the test or to be grandfathered in or to uh, continuing with continued professional development. So when you take a look at the regulatory body, they they were the initial ones that were trying to first of all collect the consultants together who were to be regulated, establishing items such as language levels, uh, establishing a complaints and discipline process, um, basically being the first one to try to to set up the. A regulatory body for consultants. So, at that time, you had less than three thousand consultants. Okay, uh, we saw educational institutions. You have to understand that the educational institutions, as I said, actually predates the regulatory process. And when you take a look at the evolution of the education uh, institutions as well, it's very interesting that there's still a discussion about the levels or the hours of education. When they were first setting up the educational institutions, they were actually taking a look at the train. What what training would an immigration officer, who at that time could be at a port of entry or overseas, undergo? And so the initial training was based on similar training to that. And we've seen that evolve from something from a hundred hours, and now let's say we're now ten years later, we're now at five hundred hours. And you also have to take a look at so you can see the history, the progress from going from around 100 hours to 500 hours to going out and taking a look at where the future might hold in regards to that, which is where the discussions were with the parliamentary committee as well, or in regards to special, further specialized training to, to possibly come into being. So the goal eventually, even when CSIC was starting to look at it, or ICCRC, looking out is a one-year or two-year degree or other than just something in a, in a diploma so that the new consultants are being trained better and, and that's the intent to be better. Um, so you saw the education with CSIC it also started to to take a look and in its model was one where it wished to protect itself to be able to um, and so the number of complaints that you had were surrounding uh, potential fees, similar complaints in regards to wanting to see the education improved, wanting to see the complaints and discipline process improved as well. Uh, there was also the issue of, in, in regards to it, in regards to the composition of the board to see whether it would change or not or what was the right governance model for it. So it was reviewed and basically in, I'll say, the second parliamentary uh, committee rendition. And the decision was made at that time to try to have, uh, try to establish another regulatory body that would be, uh, that would correct some of the deficiencies of, of that committee. Or that regulatory body. So you had model one and then you have model two. And what has, has transpired is 
we had so the just, first fall. Uh, just maybe to give a bit of context there. So what we're talking about is CSIC comes into uh, into the, the Canadian Society of Immigration Consultants, yep. CSIC, comes into existence around 2003, if I'm not mistaken. And then uh, by 2009-10, the parliamentary committee is starting to look at this again. What they were looking at it is, and this actually goes partly to, it's interesting from the aspect of funding uh, and expenses to, to members in regards to uh, what were the costs to the regulated consultants in regards to their membership, in regards to their continuing professional development points, and in regards to their practice management. Um, basically, that model was that the members were charged fees, one for the membership, two for continuing professional development, and three for practice management. So you begin to see, if you start to ratchet those up in regards to payments, uh, it becomes it's, it becomes very expensive for the consultants to be able to, to continue to practice. So when it went before that parliamentary committee, the major one of the major complaints was in regards to the cost involved, involved with it. So when the second rendition, ICCRC, is created, basically the decision was made in regards to to set, they initially set a uh, membership fee that was not as great as the membership fee of CSIC. In regards to continuing professional development, rather than than the regulatory body providing the continuing professional development, basically the decision with the second regulatory body was to allow continuing professional development. You know, for example, if a consultant heads to um, either the local is 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 allowed to go to the local CBA uh, seminars or to the national seminar that you gentlemen were talking about earlier, then our members can gain the CPD points from that. They can also gain continuing professional development from continuing professional development courses produced by CAPIC, which is the association, sort of the equivalent of the CBA, but for consultants, or by continuing professional development from education providers or private uh, or private CPD providers. So it was not a monopoly. It was allowed to extend out to to recognize that for consultants to be able to continue to practice, uh, each year you're expected to to have at least 16, 16 hours of training. And many of the members actually exceed that. Um, so it was no longer a monopoly. In regards to the practice management, uh, there was there were fees allocated with that with the previous regulator. So when they established ICCRC, the practice management courses are provided for free to the members. And so to sort of associate that with, um, in regards to your profession as a, a lawyer, you go to law school. So and then you're basically going to have your. Uh, area where you're going to article of course but you also have another level of practice management courses that you have to have to complete beside the articling so our model is based something very similar on that where the members have to go through a number of practice management courses as well and the CPD in regards to maintaining their license so in terms of that transition from CSIC to the ICCRC you have in 2003, 
the creation of a regulatory body from scratch. Yes. Um, in 2009-10, when they introduced the ICCRC, is it, in addition to what you've said, a clearing of house of the people involved and all new people brought in, almost starting from scratch again? Or is there some continuation in terms of that institutional knowledge of being a regulator? At that time, no, there was not a continuation of that knowledge because one, it was a CSIC when we went, when the government and ICCRC went to CSIC to say, hi, we wish to have the files for the complaints and discipline process. Actually, ICCRC actually ended up having to recreate them from the beginning again by basically going out to the public and saying, if you have had a complaint before the CSIC complaints and discipline process, please refile it and we'll take a look at it at that time. Also, it was it was interesting because you have the transition from CSIC to ICCRC and so there was a, a process of grandfathering in the members that did transpire. That was one of the requirements. So the initial uh, about 2,000 to 2,500 members were grandfathered into ICCRC. Um, additional funding was provided. However, I'll have to say this, it's, it's interesting from the, the standpoint that many people assume uh, that ICCRC receives ongoing funding from the government. It does not. It's primarily funded from membership fees. Yes, there was an initial grant of money, but quite frankly, as of this year, uh, ICCRC would have repaid all monies loaned to it by the government in regards to the startup. All monies. As we funded them, all monies. Most people were thinking that, well, given the cost of the regulatory process, the government would continue to fund it. That's not the case. It's funded from membership fees. And just, uh, just to, to... And there was, oh, there was one other thing. It was also very interesting because in the transition and the creation of ICCRC, um, in the transition, the minister, when he was delegating us, actually provided the members with a membership fee holiday for six months. So you also have to go, you're thinking about it and you're going, well, okay, when the organizes creation, you're not allowed to take membership fees in from the members. So immediately you're starting in a deficit position. And I'll say this, when you take a look at where ICCRC is today, basically it's not in the red, it's in the black. It has paid, it, it, it's, it's basically taken care of whatever deficit was existed in the beginning. It also has, has managed to pay back the government all fees that were, were, were given to it initially for all loans. So I just want to come back to just before we, because I think we'll spend a bit more time talking about ICCRC. I think there's a lot of interesting things to, to discuss about the current state of the uh, of the industry. Um, but uh, just to come back to the problems with CSIC, I, I seem to recall, and, and I'm sure you're more um, aware of this than I am, I seem to recall that there were some issues around what was happening with the money within CSIC. Uh, it was a non, it was a... Uh, not-for-profit society, from what I recall, Correct. that had accumulated significant amount of funds that was being either there were issues around it being reallocated within whether it was the people who were running the organization, but also with respect to promotion 
uh, or there was some controversy around the amount of funds that were being used for promotion of uh, um, consultancy uh, or, con- or consultant the consultant industry versus the regulation or, or protection of the public. There was also, um, yeah, and there is, was also is that, was that an accurate recollection or, or understanding of what was going on at that time? Well, you also or the criticisms. That well, were? one of the criticisms plus one of the other aspects is that there was something called a criminal compensation fund at that time, which required, which had them going to the members to request an additional level of not just only their insurance, but to establish a criminal criminal compensation fund which would be able to allocate funds to individuals that were taken care of, uh, that were abused uh, on a criminal basis so that they would be able to seek some sort of financial compensation. The For fund, members or clients? Uh, clients. Clients, okay. Okay. Sorry. Uh, what ended up happening is, is that there, there was about $1.5 million in regards to that. Um, Moving from CSIC to ICCRC, there was no transfer of funds. There was no transfer of a criminal fund. There was no transfer of any funds from that entity. So you have to understand, ICCRC, when it started, started anew again. And you also have to take a look at the governance model because at that point you had... As I said, three lawyers, three consultants, and three public interest directors. Uh, So part of the model, or the governance model, was to expand the number of consultants in regards to on the board. So it was decided at that time to have 12 uh, ICCRCs, or or CICs, uh, immigration consultants, basically elected, and three public interest directors. Now, I can tell you that even at this time, the governance committee of ICCRC is beginning to take a look at it and going, uh, there may be recommendations in the future that would go to the membership as well as to the government in regards to, is it time to modify that? Because when you're having, uh, let's say, you have one third of your board elected each year, um, you're having a board that does not, that may not have, as time goes on, you, if you, for example, uh, you could have six or, let's say, um, five new members one year, five new members the next year. So by the time that you get past the second year, uh, you're only having governance members who are on there who may, who may only have a year or two years of experience. But that's something that will have to be brought up with the government and will have to be also be brought up with the membership at an annual general meeting of whether or not they do wish to see an amendment to it. And so um, I guess moving on to the, so, and I think we'll, we'll talk about some of the problems with CSIC when we, when we talk about the current complaints model, or at least my personal experience uh, um, of the, the CSIC model was, um, I'll, I'll Use the technical term. The, the uh, I mean, it was a joke. It, like to be quite frank, the 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 governance model or the the regulatory oversight. Uh, I I personally was involved in filing complaints with CSIS, the CSIC, CSIC that were overwhelming. The, the, there were overwhelming evidence of incompetence uh, and and even fraudulent behavior um, that weren't even investigated. 
uh, we would get a very polite letter that says we've reviewed the file and we're not going to do anything about it. So, um, and I, I have to say that my recent experience with ICCRC has been different. Um, which well, I'd is, hope it would be different because last year when I I did happen to be chair, it became my primary concern. Let's let's take a look at the regulatory process. Um, education, evolving, advancing, increasing the amount of training for members. Uh, practice management, ensuring that they have the, the necessary tools available to them. But that goes back, but also one of the pri the primary duty is under, under is consumer protection, but it's also the complaints and discipline process. So taking a look at that, uh, we were working with a number of legal advisors in regards to trying to streamline it, in regards to not only streamline it, but increase it to the extent that we were looking at, so uh, there is looking at hiring additional investigators, additional in-house legal counsel moving forward to provide standards because one of the complaints that I heard before uh, I was chair was we put a complaint in and we don't know what the processing standard is, which is very interesting when you consider that immigration consultants and lawyers, when we're dealing with the government, we always want to know what the service standards are. So basically we've established some service standards. We've been, there's, in regards to the complaints and discipline process, there are priorities. And what I mean by priorities is if it's, if it's a referral from a government, either the federal government or provincial government, it will receive priority. If it's in the media, it will receive priority. If it is an individual who has multiple complaints against that person, it will be a priority, a top priority. So those are starting to go toward, those are at the front of the queue. Because when you take a look at it, and if an individual has multiple complaints against them, that's the type of, that's the type of case that we need to deal with because it's creating the greatest harm to the consumers. So we took a look at it, and those are the priorities. Uh, we also, so you now have the more... Uh, high-profile cases, the more ones that there's more, that there's a potential of damage to the consumer. But then at the same time, you have to have a balance. So we also were taking a look at it and we created more of, I'll say, do you really want to go to the Supreme Court every time or would you like to have a traffic court as well? If it's something that's minor, that can be fixed from a standpoint of additional training and a fine. So we were trying to get more of a reasonable balance to say, listen, depending on after the investigation and if it's proceeding, you have the option of a fine or you have the option an option of additional training to said individual so that that could be corrected as well. So that becomes the balance. And, and that's where a, we were going in regards to the complaints and discipline process. And I was just going to it is a lot more transparent, the disciplinary process. I remember I did a, I wrote an article about three, four years ago, um, basically questioning whether the ICCRC had ever disciplined anyone because there was nothing on its website. Um, and now when you go to the ICCR website, it publishes very similar to the Law Society, like the allegation, the set of facts, what the fine or consequence was, um, and you can view archive decisions, current ones. Like. You'll, and you'll notice that, that it's evolving and that from 
you know, last year and this year, you're seeing the complaint discipline, disciplinary notice uh, in regards to what either the infraction was in accordance with our code, code of conduct or our regulations, uh, what transpired, a summary, as well as the outcome. Yeah. Now, it's, it's very interesting because uh, one of the hard aspects of being, having a regulatory body that's a not-for-profit and that's under the CNCA is that, and this is part of the reason the, why... The CN, CNCA? In, just, just for... What is, well, the, what is the CNCA? Well, it's, it's basically for not-for-profits. It's like the worst, the, the last thing that you're supposed to do is to, to basically to, to take away a member's member, uh, to take away the member's right to practice or, or membership. So that's why we have provided uh, procedures in place, the investigation, going to a complaints committee, and then finally being able to get either go to a disciplinary committee or basically being able to go to uh, more of a situation where you can have one member of the complaints committee, complaints committee basically decide whether there's going to be uh, a fine or additional training to the individual. In terms of that membership, you mentioned during, I guess, the Wild West of the 90s, there were, I would assume, an estimated 3,000 people practicing. During CSIC, you said 2,000 to 2,500. Um, I don't know if those people just dropped or if they started or just practicing without being regulated. How many members does the ICCRC have now? And is there any indication how many people are practicing without being registered consultants? Okay, let's talk about that. Up to now, we have had the education programs. We have them going through their full skills exam. They are taking a look at the evolution of the full skills exam for the future as well. Is Does it stay at the current small current model? Or is it going to, to, to basically change into something different? They're looking at that. It takes time. In regards to, so now we have approximately 4,000 members. But let's also take a look at the composition of that membership. All of the membership, 70%, have less than five years of experience. So they're recent. Uh, so that's part of the reason for the additional practice management courses, and ongoing CPD. From the, of the, mem of the 4,000 members that are uh, practicing, and given that I've already said 70% have, let's say, five years or less experience, that's post-CSIC. So you have 70% of the membership who are never have no knowledge of CSIC. When we're talking about history, that's where I guess I'm a bit of a dinosaur because I've survived this long. But what also is ended up transpiring is when I take a look at my colleagues that have been around, we're probably at about 500 to 700. So <clears throat> I can tell you at the, the last annual general meeting as we were closing it, um, I was indicating to them why I was not proceeding with running because for the board for that year, given that I was really established, trying to reestablish my own uh, company and operation and also get back into education. But it was also in regards to <clears throat> when you start to ask and you go, how many people have been involved in immigration? And I guess I'm the elder elder here because you gentlemen have known I've been around for 30 years, 20 years trying to push, push this boulder up the hill in regards to the regulation of consultants. 
it's time for younger people. We actually have a very uh, qualified young chair under Chris Daw at the present time. Um, last year, when I was chair, we had a interim CEO followed by an acting CEO, which was Lawrence Barker. One of the aspects that's also mentioned is stability, and I'd like to point this out to you. Of all of the senior management team <clears throat> that's been with ICCRC, all of them are there. The five are all there, with the exception of one who recently left, and that was the director of communication. But this also goes to that need of when we're talking about greater transparency and greater communication, they're actually hiring additional people in regards to that. They Last year, we spent a lot of our time uh, listening to the government because the government was going, we don't really like your, your website because there's not enough information there in regards to the compliance and discipline process. And you've seen that change. You've seen it change in regards to the requirements to be as transparent as possible where we are going in the future. Uh, you've seen us now mentioning federal, federal statute or greater cooperation with the various governments, whether federal or provincial. When I, and when you say, what do you mean by greater cooperation? It could be memorandums of understanding or information sharing agreements. Here in BC, um, basically, the, Canadian, uh, the BC Bar Association is, is presently dealing with the BC government in regards to an information sharing agreement. I can tell you that ICCRC is also taking a look at to have an information sharing agreement not only here in BC but with the other provinces and whether or not we're dealing with other models that see, uh, see where they've implemented their own regulatory process which could be Quebec could be Manitoba, could be Saskatchewan, where ICCRC is moving it, and with all of the federal departments as well as the provincial governments is for memorandums of understanding and ISAs to be as transparent, transparent as possible with what's happening. I think we both have several questions. <laughs> I was just gonna. I was just gonna say one of the. Uh, just as we're talking about ICCRC, one of the changes that came into effect at that time that ICCRC came into effect as well was precisely was penalties around people practicing who weren't members of ICCRC or of uh, of the law societies. Um, CBSA, um, and I think that this, I, I, I think anybody who works in the industry is well aware that, that CBSA was um, ostensibly supposed to take on the mantle of dealing with the non-members practicing. And I think some right. of the most egregious um, abuses that we see in our practices, and, and we see, you know, we see problematic uh, and, and conduct and, and incompetence on behalf of lawyers and consultants and, and other people in the in the industry. Uh, but the most egregious conduct is definitely from non-members uh, in, in general. Um, and we we had a podcast last uh, was it last last podcast or the one before uh, we talked about the the Sunny Wang and the New Can um, and they were no longer members uh, at the time that the most egregious conduct in, in that consultancy took place. For the record, you have to understand they were not ICCRC members. They were they were CSIC members at one point, or at least yeah. there were CSIC members involved in that consultancy at one point. Um, and, and then I understand that one or more of the memberships lapsed uh, during the course of the, the more egregious aspects of that fraud. 
Um, that that seems to be one of the the challenges. The law society, and as we talked about earlier, has a mandate to go after non-members. Um, but because of the manga decision, it's unclear as to whether the law society has a a mandate to go after non-members that are practicing immigration. Uh, CBSA ostensibly has a mandate, but they can't even keep up with the criminal frauds. Forget about uh, people practicing without a license. Um, and it doesn't seem to be a priority for CBSA. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to your views as to whether or not this is something that is uh, that the government should be taking on more seriously, or is this something that should be part of ICCRC's mandate? Um, where where do you see this issue around ghost consultants going? Um, and okay, what what do you uh, and these are colloquially referred to as ghost consultants. And I, I, I don't mean to or if it's in the media, uh, just consultants or in the media, just consultants. But <laughs> yes. when when I say ghost consultant, I mean non members, uh, people who are uh, taking consideration for representing people in immigration matters without being members of uh, well, ICCRC or the Law Society. Well, it's actually interesting that you said that the Law Societies may seem to be confused about their role in regards to it. That's where greater clarification is needed because, <coughs> excuse me, actually when, when ICCRC first started, the first thing that they would do is, it's, it's like sorting, sorting the complaints. You've got to take a look at who or we are, are dealing with. And if we're going, can we deal with it? If it was out of a certain province and, and they were not a member, we would basically notify a law society and say, well, here's a, here's the situation. We would notify the CBSA and the RCMP. In regards to the CBSA, um, you've heard them recently in regards to their understaffed, underfunded in regard to that. Uh, they're more taking a look at more of the higher profile cases, such as uh, Sunny Wang or Can, in, in regards to where it's a, it's a little more outrageous in regards to what has transpired. Um, but they still have been uh, past the complaints or or the names of the individuals that that we're going are outside of our mandate. Now, where is it going to go? We are we have seen the parliamentary committee taking a look at it. Parliamentary committee committee's mandate was to take a look at the regulated immigration consultants, the non-immigrated consult, immigration consultants, as well as what's transpiring with paralegals as well, given what's happening in Ontario. Um, it's evolving. Basically, if you take a look at what happened on May 29th, you heard the government, uh, Mr. McDonald, basically indicate that ICCRC is in regular contact with IRCC. You have to understand, since the beginning of, of ICCRC, and I, I'm not trying to confuse you with that IRCC and ICCRC, but what, ends up, what is ending up happening is uh, ICCRC, since the beginning of its five-year term, has to quarterly provide its financial reports, uh, minutes of its meetings to the government. That's been happening quarterly and annually. And in fact, we just finished providing our last report, which was one of the last things that I was responsible for as chair, to the, to the government in regards to what has transpired with uh, ICCRC. You also have to understand that there was a contribution agreement 
and, and think of a contribution agreement as a shopping list of things that we want you to do. But that shopping list is going to change or increase with time. And there has to be a reevaluation. So when we take a look at it and we take a look at that shopping list, you know, they were initially taking a look at, hmm, did, does ICCRC need an ombudsman? That was part of the agreement. There was a discussion with them. Uh, we took a look at other regulatory bodies and the decision was made as long as we're responsive and we have procedural fairness built into our complaints and discipline process, then there shouldn't need be the need for that ombudsman because you don't want to get into a situation where you can start to second guess your own complaints and discipline process with an individual. Yeah, I guess we haven't mentioned that yet, that this podcast is being recorded at, I don't know if they're, if they're all the hearings are finished, but when Parliament or the House of Commons Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration is doing its five-year review of the ICCRC, um, and there have been a number of suggestions put forward by different stakeholders, one of which is pretty parallel to what you were, not parallel, but kind of related to what you were just talking about, which is the idea that the de- some people put forward the suggestion that the department should just take over regulating directly. So how, how important in the, do you think it is that the regulation of the profession be arm's length from the government? Well, let's talk about it. To be self-regulated is the greatest goal for any profession to have. You gentlemen are self-regulated. You recognize the benefit of it to be basically to control, to be able to to own your own house, is the way I'll describe it. Uh, also, at uh, the parliamentary committee, it was, it was quite interesting when they were talking about various tiers of consultants. And it was interesting from my standpoint of, uh, I would have trusted that they would have read hopefully the, the latest program directive updates in, in regards to IP9 in regards to representatives that apply uh, basically for dealing with immigration as well as the latest updates in regards to citizenship as well. Um, It would have been nice. Other than that, it was also trying to to explain to them one of the the items that, that if you were to say five years ago when the shopping list was given to us, By the way, things have been added to that shopping list. One of the things that was added was Rhesius. And you say, what's a Rhesius? Well, it's a student advisor. Basically, the government came to the regulatory body, ICCRC, and said, listen, um, the educational institutions have student advisors as part of their employees, as part of giving immigration. So for them to be able to practice, the government says, we have two ways that we can deal with that. We can either go, they do not have to go through any regulatory process and they can practice. And you gentlemen have seen that with IOM and VFS where the government basically allows that special provision. And that in itself is a little bit controversial and does does deserve some reflection. Or... So VFS, for those who don't know, are the... Also, like, they're... Companies around the world, um, or maybe be one company with just affiliates. One major. It is one major. So, and they will take applications uh, that are destined for visa offices overseas, 
They don't make decisions on the applications, but they do charge a fee to review whether the application is complete, which as anyone who submits immigration applications know is often a huge hurdle that has to be overcome. Um, or, uh, well, they do, yeah, they charge to review that it's complete and then forward it to the visa post. So, sorry. That's fine. It's a good explanation. Otherwise, the government came to us and said, listen, we want them to be able to practice. Can you, one, create the standards, create the examination, and create the designation for them so that they can continue to practice? So that was not part of the first, first salvo of things that you had to do. It took us a good two years to be able to do that, but it is done. There's now over 100 registered RECIAs being able to practice. Well, I think from my perspective, uh, just uh, um, the, uh, I think the student advisor is a good example for me of where I actually see consultants being a very useful, having a very useful role. Um, is where I see the, the most competent work by consultants. And in fact, quite frankly, um, some of the student advisors are more competent to do what they're doing than I would be to advise somebody about doing a study permit for UBC through Beijing. If you want to do a study permit uh, um, to go to the University of British Columbia, uh, the people at the University of British Columbia deal with hundreds of these applications. They deal with the same visa offices on a regular basis. They know exactly the documentation that's needed, what the requirements are. Um, they're actually very, very competent to assist people. Um, where I have a lot more concerns um, is in more complex hearings, and in particular in adversarial hearings. And, and I think that's where you know your, your question, Steve, about whether or not you need an independent organization. Um, for me, there's a real problem with having someone regulated by an adverse party who is to be representing people. The bar has been militant about its independent from the, independence from the government um, because we litigate against the government all the time. That's what my, my job is to hold the government to account. That's what I do. Uh, if I was regulated by the government and was concerned about the government being able to pull my license, um, I would not be, um, I wouldn't be as vigorous in that, or there might be concerns from my client's perspective as to whether or not I was as vigorous an advocate as I could otherwise be. Um, and you've just given a, a reason why we wish to continue to be self-regulated or to have other you know, that's why we were taking a look at it from the standpoint of um, this is the third time around with the government in regards to this, in regards to talking about governance models, talking about power. That's why you've now, for, for this time, uh, at this latest set of parliamentary hearings, you heard the, the, the term federal statute or taking a look at it to negotiate further to actually entrench it so that uh, basically, it has more of a standalone ability rather than, uh, you know, being a political football, depending on which which department is or which 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 party is in government. Because one of the concerns that I had was the perception that CSIC had been previously created by the Liberals, and when ICC came, ICCRC came along, it was created by the Conservatives. What you have to understand is that it was never meant to be on a political agenda or linked to a political party. This is the industry itself saying, 
we want to be self-regulated. What are the tools available that we have to be able to move it forward? And if we can move it to federal statute, then it would be an issue of it can be more standalone separate. Also, what additional powers do you wish to see? And that's part of a negotiation type of process. What determines the number of consultants? I guess we get into article. Is it just however many the educational students can register, the ICCRC won't set a limit, or does the ICCRC have a target? Actually, what's, what's ended up happening up to now is, is that they have, there have been discussions in regards to that about hi, how many consultants should there be? Uh, is, there, is there an actual number? And, you know, I can tell you that they are taking, you know, there has been discussions about that. Of, is there a situation where it's going to reach a saturation point? Is there a situation where, but you also have to go, there's different balances. Because as they increase the number of hours in regard to the education, you're going to have fewer people basically taking the course, maybe, because of the expense. Then you, you take a look at that balance, and then you also take a look at the number of people that are sort of older and grayer like myself who may, who may want to be retiring that are leaving the profession as well. So what we've seen up to now is each year there's about, let's say, 10% to 15%. You have new coming uh, people, new ones who go, this is not for me, as well as old ones basically leaving. You have, and right now it's almost at a balance. That's why you've actually, if you, if you, if you were taking a look at the numbers, you'd say it's, it's slowed. Initially, initially when you were taking a look at it, and you're sort of going, okay, it's five years later from, from CSIC. It hasn't doubled. It's, it's, bar it's barely raised 1,500 members. So you're at about 4,000. And of those 4,000, what percent have received complaints like when we hear about complaints to parliament about consultants are we talking like i think it's it's it, it, it's one of these things where is it two percent that are just kind of causing the problem is there 50 percent who are getting complaints um, not necessarily i'm not talking in terms of resolved complaints just in terms of the complaints being received okay yeah. initially when iccrc was created and you have the big salvo of now you have a regulatory body, uh, here's the complaints and discipline process. Well, there's usually a huge spike at the beginning. Okay? And also you had to deal with what had previously existed within CSIC to try to capture that. So you did have an inventory at the beginning. And then you're basically carving away at that. As time is going on as well, it starts to stabilize. And what you're ending up seeing is probably you get 400, let's say 400 complaints a year, four to 500. You also get the complaints for the unregulated consultants. And basically that's passed on the CBSA. Those, they actually keep the stats in regards to that. And, and actually, if you go onto the website or you attend the annual general meeting, those are released. Yeah. And this is one of the aspects that I believe that there needs to be better communication and that's why I'm here with yeah. you gentlemen, is to release that to the law societies or release that to the lawyers so they can see that it's not 
you're not seeing 50% of the members undergoing complaints. It's actually when you take a look at the statistics, you have about 10, 10%. Is that 10% of members? 10%, oh, so 400 complaints, but I assume not all of those are against one individual. No. I assume there's some who are receiving. Correct. So, so that's why you then lower it and you're sort of going, it's actually, so if you go 10 to 15, it's actually lower than that number because you will have members, some members who have had uh, multiple complaints. Yeah. And that's why I also started by saying <coughs> it takes a little bit longer to investigate them, but at the same time, those are a higher priority as well. And so we will see those drop as well. That drops the statistics, excuse me, the statistics as well. Um, and so, like, I don't know if you know the numbers off, but are we looking at, like, of those 400, kind of the 80-20 rule where 20% of people are getting... That's that stat. To, but like, is it a like? You're if close. you had to guesstimate on uh, the actual, I would say probably about yeah. you know eighty percent have a complaint against them. It also depends on the types of complaints that you're looking at. Yeah, you gentlemen know that when you're dealing with, it's going to come down to hi. <coughs> I didn't get the end result from IRCC that they wanted, or it could be in regards to the the finances in regards to their fees and wanting to basically have a refund. Those are the, you know, those are usually the bulk of the complaints. And that's where you have to take a look at the, at the nature of them. Sorry, I was just going to say the, uh, in, in terms of talking with my, with my students, and I've been involved uh, for the past few years in teaching the refugee module at UBC, and I know you're now involved as a director or a you're, you're the director of education at Ashton, or you're directing the program at Ashton? The immigration programs at uh, Ashton. In, in terms of the... Uh, Part of it is, my history, as you know, is I, uh, my history sort of predates uh, the regulatory process with education providers. Having worked with Seneca, which was the first education provider, then, bring, then, seeing, then basically seeing education spread to spread to BC and Alberta and, and Quebec. So then we had a, a national network. Uh, having been an instructor for 10 years at UBC, <clears throat> and now moving, I sat on the previous boards of UBC in, in regards to Ashton at different times, in regards to trying to advance their programs, in regards to making them better, improving them. And as you heard me say today, is, is, is this 500-hour national standard that ICCR, ICCRC has established, is that the end of it? No, it's not. As I told you, you could end up seeing a 750-hour one-year program. You could eventually see a two-year program. You may end up seeing a specialization in regards to before appearing before a tribunal. From the standpoint of it, it is a different skill set. Also, the other thing that changed at ICCRC at, at January of last year was the language requirement. It's now a level eight. Basically, what happened was you had the Canada language benchmark. We brought them in to actually shadow consultants while they were either preparing, meeting clients, or going before the IRB to say, what is the minimum level of language that you do need to be able to be able to do that and communicate your thoughts effectively? So you now have seen, one, the language benchmark raised, you now see the education raised. Is it going to stay there? No. It's got to improve. It's very interesting because we've seen uh, 
for a while, we saw uh, CBSA officers because there was that transition between you have CIC and then customs officers. You would have seen in part of your programs, you would have seen some of the CBSA officers actually attend and take, take the programs. We've seen that uh, at a number of the education providers. But it's something that it's to continue to raise. And are we going to see the government come in and, and take it over? Well, one of the aspects that they have to talk about in the parliamentary committee that they, they, they brought it up, but there's been no study on, is what's the cost? What is the cost of money? What is the cost of the government? What is, as you've already pointed out, having them be the regulatory body in regards to trying to go before in an advocacy situation? in regards to that situation. Yeah. Well, I guess my, my concern is less, uh, I, I mean, I have to say that with respect to advocacy, um, when it's non-adversarial, I have less concerns around it than when you're in an adversarial situation. And I still, even having taught in the, the, the refugee module for the past several years at UBC, I still uh, have very... Uh, um, very strong concerns around uh, consultants doing uh, refugee hearings. There are very few consultants that I think have a level of skill and knowledge to, and quite frankly, it's, I, I find it shocking um, in general, the low level of uh, Importance that's given to refugee hearings compared to, for example, I practice criminal law. I look at, I look at, for example, what's involved in sentencing somebody to more than five years of prison, or somebody who's even at risk of more than five years of prison gets a a, a full jury trial before a superior court judge, state-funded counsel, and if it was a murder trial, it would have to be a very experienced counsel. Um, even Steve or I wouldn't do a murder trial on our own. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and we would go out, uh, um, and yet somebody comes out of the, out of the, the course at UBC has gotten six weeks of, uh, of train, of evening training, one, one, uh, evening a week of training in refugee law and is, is competent or is going to go in and do a refugee hearing. Uh, that's, you can go to law not, that's not necessarily the case. Is, is not, I'm not suggesting they do. Because and what ends up happening uh, is when you take a look at our code itself, it says if you do not feel that you're competent to be able to do that, rule number one is co-counsel with somebody who has so that you can learn or be mentored and be able to to be able to, if that's the area that you're going to be in. Well, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting, and I'm sorry, I shouldn't put that in, in the terms that people actually would. And for the same reason that Steve and I wouldn't do a murder trial on our own, yeah. uh, is that we're expected to be competent not to do those things, or, or we're expected right. to know what we're competent not to do. But going um, to what you did, I mean, you can graduate law school. Like, I never took immigration in law school, and yet, thankfully, I got good mentorship at Larley Rosenberg when I uh, went there to start practicing. But the same, I could have gone to the IRB with no experience. I think the same problem there faces lawyers as well. Um, it, it, maybe it, even more so because we wouldn't. You don't need any training. The difference for me is that the the legal training 
um, does prepare you for being able to engage with case law, engage with the rules of the board, engage with adversarial. Uh, those are all skills that are taught in over a lengthier period of time. And I'm not sure, I mean, I'm not, I don't necessarily know what the answer to this is, but my, um, uh, my concerns around it are particularly stark when you're talking about somebody who is facing a risk of being sent back to a country where they could be tortured and killed. There, there, there are no more higher stakes cases that I deal with in my practice. And for me, I see the, the it, it's dealt with very summarily in an administrative proceeding. Um, there is no right to state-funded counsel. Uh, or ostensibly, that hasn't been litigated. Anyway, we can argue about that, but the, there's, there hasn't been an established right to state-funded counsel. I think Ontario just um, suspended legal aid for a lot of refugee cases. Yeah. Yeah. Some other issues. So we may get some decisions on that issue. We may. And, and the other thing uh, is, is that there are some, some consultants have been practicing for a number of years that have actually specialized in that area that are doing quite well at it as well. Yeah. I mean, I'd say actually my biggest, and I also now teach at the uh, UBC consulting course, and one of the things that I stress to the students and probably one of the things most surprising to me, and something that I think would only be exacerbated if the government regulated directly, is how timid a lot of... Uh, the consultants are and how they don't a lot of consultants view themselves with that adversarial or legal mindset where as soon as the state challenges anything that they say there's a fair number that just fold um, I'm not sure what the solution to that is or how you would instill that in the context of the consulting course one of the questions uh, that I did want for you though in terms of uh, the overall governance and the another possible challenge to the ICCRC is that, you know, with the law societies, it's all provincial and we have, I guess, the Canadian Bar Association to deal on immigration matters nationally. With the ICCRC, it's a federal body and increasingly individual provinces are getting involved in the regulation of consultants. Correct. Um, do you foresee provincial ICCRCs forming? And maybe just what are your thoughts? I mean, as we talk about these different types of what state regulation could look like, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that in Saskatchewan, A, they have to pay a bond to submit applications to the Saskatchewan Immigrant Nominee Program, but there's also a fair amount of waiving of solicitor-client privilege that Saskatchewan requires which, uh, you know, going back to the types of applications that you'd want to submit, I mean, I don't even know how it's possible to submit an application where someone has can't present uh, concerns to you confidentially. Well, and that goes back to the provinces being involved. But it also has to deal with, when you go back to the, the Manga case, it did recognize the dual nature of immigration of it being both provincial, uh, of being federal and provincial. Though federal does have the paramountcy if they occupy the field, it is a shared domain. And so what we're seeing with some of the provinces as well is one of the requirements that they'll, they'll take a look at when ICCRC goes in is they go, hi, our first, first step, are they an ICCRC member? Have they taken an educational program? Have they been recognized as an ICCRC? Are they in good standing? That's usually the starting point that they go. Where the provinces are more concerned with, whether it's Manitoba or Saskatchewan or BC, it's not limited to what 
what's happening with just a consultant. It's 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 or consultants. It's basically what's happening with representatives, whether they're lawyers or consultants, and for them to be able to protect the integrity of the program. If they see something that is wrong, they wish to be able to have the ability to be able to control who is going to be able to to submit applications or not. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, it's been a very uh, interesting discussion. I think that we could uh, we could have a much longer discussion about uh, the these issues, and I'm sure we will uh, going forward. Uh, hopefully, we'll have you back in. Uh, if you see, hopefully you'll be, I'm sure you'll still be in the profession for some some years. I believe and, uh, I will. You're still a young guy, <laughs> but uh, so we'll. Uh, but uh, thank you very much for joining us. It's been very insightful. I've definitely learned a, a lot about uh, the, and, and I'm, I'm learning more as my practice uh, kind of evolves into that area uh, of, uh, of of dealing with some of these cases, both in terms of representing your members uh, um, and spending less time going after your members. Uh, so that's, that's been a bit of a change for me. So no, it's I'll, always uh, it's always good to learn about uh, the ancient history of the 1990s. Exactly. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Ron. Thank you so very much, Peter and Steve. Thank you for joining us on the Borderlines podcast. You can find us at borderlines.ca. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please do leave us a review. It does help others to find the podcast. Thank you very much to Robin Bayer and Funk in the Trunk for our music and to our sound tech, Mackenzie Higgins. (laughs) 